Inspiration. I am your host, Mike Hendley. Episode 67, For the Love of Watercolor and Observation with Ian DeHogue. Hi everyone, welcome back. I'm thankful that you're here again, joining me for another episode. I've got a wonderful guest this week, but I thought I'd uh, cover a few updates as I normally do at the beginning of the podcast. So I wanted to just mention, you know, the things like this podcast take a significant amount of time. I actually did a Instagram live where I was uh, going through and editing this podcast just so people can see what's involved in that. So I wanted to reach out specifically to the patrons who've supported this podcast in uh, providing me the opportunity to continue to do this. There are expenses around running a podcast involving, you know, the hardware, the software, the hosting, all of that. Uh, And I just wanted to say thank you to all the patrons who've supported me along the way. So the way you can support the podcast is through Patreon, and I've made a recent change to Patreon. So previously, the Patreon was tied specifically to the podcast. It was patreon.com slash drawing inspiration podcast. I have changed the name to patreon.com slash Mike Hendley, and I've always struggled with, is the podcast different than me as an artist? And I've kind of separated them in the past, but I think I'm bringing them back together. I think that as an artist, part of what I do is create artwork. And I also have a newsletter. And I also do a podcast. I started thinking that made more sense maybe for Patreon, where by supporting me as an artist, it allows me to do the podcast. But it also allows me to uh, venture into other areas as well. And if you Obviously, by buying my artwork is one way to support me. So I've provided some uh, benefits to Patreon members with regard to prints. And it just felt always a bit weird that I was giving them my prints because they were supporting just the podcast. And I think moving forward, now I'm able to do that. And it makes more sense to me that I would send them prints in thanks for what they've been doing and, and supporting the podcast and supporting me as an artist It also means that I can do some more interesting blog posts that may just be restricted to Patreon members. And I'm also looking at the opportunity to provide kind of a one-on-one, maybe on a monthly basis, as part of one of the tiers as well. So I have an opportunity to connect with my supporters and we can just talk art or I could provide some insight and vice versa. So I'm looking at some other opportunities with regard to that. The tiers aren't going to change right now, but they may in future. So... I just wanted to give you a heads up. I've gone back and changed all the links on my sites as well as the show notes to reflect the new link to the Patreon. It is a different link altogether now. So it is patreon.com slash Mike Hendley. So thank you everyone for your ongoing support. If you uh, choose not to be a Patreon member, then that's absolutely fine. You can support me by uh, purchasing my work or even just telling people about the podcast or rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts. So uh, I appreciate all of you. I appreciate you coming back every week and hearing what I have to say (laughs) and what my guests have to say. So I just wanted to thank you so much for being part of this journey. On the point of artwork, I did release my first originals. So I have not released original artwork before except for a few commissions and so this is my first time doing that it was the mushroom series that i did which was drawing mushrooms with mushroom ink so i called it my mushroom recursion collection i first shared the originals there were seven originals i've sold a few of them there are still some left 
And then a week later, I've now made the prints available. So the originals are 7 by 10 and I painted them on Arches uh, cold press, so it's a 300 GSM. And the prints I made myself, I have a um, printer that uses archival ink, and I bought some Hanumule, I think that's how you pronounce it, uh, William Turner inkjet paper. So this is 310 GSM cold press paper. And I have to say, this is the most beautiful paper I've ever touched. It's just wonderful texture on it. And uh, so I printed these um, prints. They're limited edition prints. I'm limiting it to 25 editions per piece. And the paper is incredible. I've had a piece on my desk just reaching over and touching it every so often because it feels so nice. And I think these prints are, are just incredible. So I'm actually more interested now than ever than in producing some more mushroom ink pieces as well as some watercolor. So uh, I invite you to check them out, take a look around. And I've also changed my shipping because I'm in Canada. It's always been difficult shipping to the U.S. So I'm using a service called Chit Chats. And it allows me then to provide you with a tracking number so you can see how it's kind of moving through the system. So I'm excited about that. So I've done a, a couple of um, pieces of artwork that I shared. So one was a weasel or what's also known as a stoat. I did that as a watercolor piece. I actually did that in a food court in a mall I was waiting for my daughter. I brought my little watercolor kit and I sat there and uh, it was cool. People were walking by wondering, what's this guy doing with all this stuff on his table? And I had uh, a teenage girl come by and just say how much she loved the work. So I appreciated hearing that. And uh, I just, I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe somebody saw it and, and went home that evening and decided to try drawing or painting themselves. So it was nice to be able to do that. I was masked the whole time we have to be in, in the city that I'm in. And I really enjoyed doing that. I haven't, I hadn't been out, I think, in that capacity, drawing or painting for a year and a half. And so it was good to get back. I love the white noise around me and just being kind of, in some ways, I think I look at myself as being hidden in plain sight. And so it's, uh, you know, most of the time you're not seen. And then the people that want to say something do come up and say that and um, comment on your work, whatever the case. So I think it's just a I enjoy doing it. I, I hope to do more, uh, depending on how things change in the future. So, uh, yeah. And the other piece was a chickadee I did in pencil. This was part of a watercolor course, which we'll get into a little bit later in the podcast here. But uh, part of the uh, first session was just drawing a chickadee. And, you know, being a pencil artist, I got a little bit carried away and decided to, to draw the whole reference in pencil. I will be doing a second piece, which is just the outline in preparation for the next course where we're actually going to be using the watercolor. So I thought that was kind of fun. So I posted it on my Instagram. I'll provide a link to that and the weasel in the show notes. And just the final thing I wanted to talk about is uh, I go through this exercise every year as, it, as we approach January in thinking, what am I doing for 2022? Some of us make New Year's resolutions. Others may have a strategic plan around what we're doing as a creative. And what I've been doing the last few years is, is going with the idea of a theme. It may be one word. It may be two words. And the theme serves as a guide for me for that year in understanding what I want to try and do. So this last year, it was flight and focus. It was kind of leaving the comfort of what I was doing and really embracing the idea of being an artist. My previous theme was emergence, where I 
kind of considered myself uh, emerging as an artist and just embracing that term. This year I'm taking it further. And the idea of, of two terms was I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just jumping off a branch, that I was uh, having some degree of focus on what I was trying to do. And I think I achieved that this year. So I'm going through thinking, what do I want to do next year? And what is a theme that will help guide me in what I'm doing creatively? This doesn't affect my my day job. It doesn't impact my uh, personal family life, except my commitment in, in doing art and doing the podcast. But uh, I'm going through thinking through that. And I thought as an exercise, I'm going to do this with others. I'm going to be setting up a Twitter spaces to talk through themes and uh, to invite others to talk through this idea and maybe throw around ideas of what you're going to use as a theme and how you actually use that through the year. And I'm also going to be hosting a room on Clubhouse for the same reason. So if you go to Clubhouse, you can find the Drawing Inspiration podcast. You can join that club and you'll get notified when I spin that up. So I'm probably going to do that in the next week for both Twitter Spaces and Clubhouse. But I thought it would be an interesting exercise where we sit around as artists and just talk about what are we going to do? What did we achieve this year? What do we need to focus on? You may not want to talk about what your theme may be, but I really like the idea of a theme because it, if you've got something like a flight in focus, which is what I used for this year, every single decision you can weigh against that theme. Am I consistent with, with what I'm trying to achieve? And am I going to be happy with the results? And so I found that kind of overarching uh, word or couple of words really helps to to kind of make those challenging decisions a little bit easier and provides that kind of level of guidance, that light, that level of thoughtfulness that you've had in what you're trying to achieve. Because uh, sometimes we get so caught up in the one project to the next project and so on and so forth that maybe we're not giving the opportunity to say yes to certain things because we're not willing to say no to others. And we have to remember that that whole idea that, you know, by saying no, you're giving the opportunity to say yes to something else. And it's okay to do that. So if you want to join me on Twitter or Clubhouse, just follow me. You'll get notified when that happens. And I think that's it for updates. So with that, we'll head right into this interview. If you're like me and inspired by nature and birds and animals, drawing or painting is a way to honor them and reflect on their beauty. My guest this week has the ability to render these subjects with a thoughtful and intentional approach to drawing and watercolor. His skill in observation and leveraging the subtleties of watercolor is unquestionable. As an educator, he's been able to distill and document his process so that others can embrace the joy in creating pieces that fill the heart and touch the soul. To talk about his creative journey, I welcome to the Drawing Inspiration podcast, Ian DeHogue. Ian, how are you? I'm good, Mike. Hey, um, thank you very much for for having me as a guest. It's a real treat. Well, it's a, it's a treat having you on. I've been an admirer of your work for so long. Your watercolor pieces are incredible. I'm a huge fan of nature and birds specifically. And obviously, when I saw your work, I thought you know at some point I need to have Ian on the show <laughs> talk about what he does because it just blows my mind. I need to know how you pull this magic off. I'm taking a course with you through Etcher, and right. it was wonderful this week to catch, you know, the first version of that where we went through the drawing, 
And as a pencil artist, I got a little bit carried away with the <laughs> the sketching component of this course and drew the whole bird in uh, in pencil. But I'll come back and do the chickadee again so that we can do watercolor in in a week or so. No, I saw it. It was really good. So thank you. No, it was a really really great drawing of the chickadee. That's I've I've drawn a lot, and when you I knew you were going to use that as a subject. It's like I'm in. I'm so into this. Um, <laughs> so and and we'll talk about the course a little bit later. And and how you could possibly still get into that and follow up on the on the remaining bits. So um, we'll get to that when we talk about uh, some of the training you've been doing. But I wanted to, as I always do, I like to know where people come from, and that helps to kind of understand their mindset and their inspiration as we move forward. So was art like were you the art kid growing up? Uh, were you creative as a child uh, beyond you know most of us where we play with play doh and we draw with crayons? Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 there's, well, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm working towards something. I don't know exactly what it is yet, but I mean, there's, there's always been some form. I mean, I, I've drawn since I was really little, really there. I remember there was a, a pencil sketch. I can't remember the individual's name that was just at the edge of our hallway uh, of some deer. And it was somebody that I had met, uh, a friend of my parents. And it just kind of blew me away. It wasn't so much that it was a great drawing. It was just that, you know, someone's hung that up in our house and I met the person that made that. And I always thought that was kind of, kind of cool. And then there was another point that I remember when we went camping once and my mom uh, pulled out some paper and she drew for all intents and purposes, a fairly realistic looking horse. And I was like, wow, like just made that, <laughs> like that's, <laughs> that didn't exist. And now it's there. And I just thought that was really, really cool. So those are kind of two things that, that I remember when I was really little and I don't know how much they, they kind of spurred me on to kind of, you know, continue to draw, which is always something that I love to doodle, but I never pursued you know, if I was given the option to take an art class at school, it was like, nah, I don't want to do that. Right. So, but it just was always kind of around. I more got into music was really, mm. I picked up the guitar when I was in my early teens and um, was all about Zeppelin and all that kind of stuff. And then grunge happened and all that kind of thing. And uh, I had in my mind when I was going to um, go into university that I would pursue architecture. So the guitar was just kind of a hobby. I was really into buildings and Frank Lloyd Wright and all that kind of stuff. But it did involve um, leaving the island if I was to kind of pursue architecture. So I didn't really do that. I just kind of stuck around university for a little while and then sort of lost interest in being there. I love to learn, okay. um, continue to do so, but that environment wasn't really um, for me. And sorry, when you say you'd have to leave the island, just so the yeah, listener knows. Yeah, because it wasn't really something, architecture wasn't really offered, it wasn't offered at UVic. So just to explain to everyone, um, you're on Vancouver Island in BC. At that time, yes. W were you nervous about 
kind of being away from home or was it, um, did you feel that it wouldn't be necessarily leaving the island, but moving to another part of the country or to the U.S.? Yeah, I, you know, there, there is probably a, a lot to do with um, relationship. Okay. Uh, my wife, we've been married for, for many years, uh, but we've also been dating since uh, I was like 15. That's awesome. So God forbid her parents to listen to this. <laughs> as far as they know, we didn't we didn't officially start dating until about a year later. <laughs> okay, so everyone who's listening, don't tell anyone. <laughs> Sorry, Jim and Layla. <laughs> yeah, so uh, obviously, we I mean we make decisions based on that, right? Around the circumstances yeah. around us, where we have maybe not, we don't have the ability to necessarily move. So that's that's good. I just wanted people to understand, you know, because you're still in BC. I'm still um, in BC. Yeah. Going back to your point about talking about architecture, you decided you, you lost interest in that. Yep. And then I had uh, brought up the idea with my father that I was just not going to stick around and do university anymore, which didn't go over too well. Um, <laughs> so uh, it was like, well, you got to find something to do. And I don't know if it was that sort of age and um, being kind of challenging or whatnot. But uh, I was like, okay, well, there's, um, they have music at UVic. I could go study music. But the only option to study guitar at UVic was classical. So, and that wasn't something that I played. So I just got it in my head that I would figure out classical guitar and uh, audition. And I got in a year later. So Awesome. So I studied classical guitar uh, at UVic for four years and then majored in composition, music composition, writing music. So, which was interesting. So that's what I mentioned. There's always been, you say, arts, right? Artist kind of thing. It's, mm-hmm. That's been one angle of it. That led into actually photography. So, and then that became something I did for quite some time. And still do to this day. Were you still drawing and doodling through your arts degree? Through your yep. um, music degree? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Never, never stopped. So just kind of, it sort of just stuck around. That's cool. I, I mm. found when I was growing up, just because the, I think the group I hung around with and stuff that, you know, the whole drawing and art wasn't kind of the cool thing to do. Um, there's probably more latitude when you deal with other people in arts <laughs> to be able to, to be a doodler and a drawer and a painter. But uh, the group I hung out with, it was just wasn't wasn't the thing. So uh, it's a bit challenging, but I think it's great that you're able to carry that through your music degree. And then you say you went into photography. Is that how did the the connection? <laughs> how did you move from music and and you know your degree in majoring in composition to uh, to photography? Um, well, it was it was kind of one of those things where the photography I um, and I was some pieces I was writing and started thinking about you know visual things with to go along with some of these pieces. Um, so I started kind of creating black and white images that I thought would evoke maybe the shapes of the sounds that I wanted to create. So visual representations either to, you know, complement the sounds I was trying to create or to contradict. Um, but the long and the short of it is I was creating some black and white images and, um, I thought they were they were pretty good, and uh, I ended up getting asked to um, second shoot as like a family member my sister in law's wedding, and so I did a bunch of black and white photography for that, and then some people saw those, 
And then next thing you know, I was doing another one. And then next thing you know, it was some portraits and more weddings. And I just kind of fell into it. It wasn't something that I, I went after. So, and, and you'll, as we talk about some other things, you'll see that that, that, that does seem to kind of be my pattern. <laughs> and so you were doing wedding photography and, and obviously working around pieces tied to your music. How did you move into nature? Was that, you know, when you were doing the wedding photography, like that's lucrative, obviously generates revenue, uh, you have happy clients. <laughs> and so there's kind of, it, it's great to hear that feedback. If you're out by yourself taking pictures of birds, it's not, probably not the same kind of thing, but it seems maybe at some point that you moved into doing a lot more nature photography. Is that accurate to say? Yeah, I I, I do more of that now because, you know, I have a lot of images that I've taken over the years, um, but it's really only been in the last year that I've actually got what I would consider to be a really appropriate lens for nature photography, so a, a decent focal length. Um, but it didn't really matter if, you know, I was shooting with a 70 to 200 and, you know, the bird or whatever was pretty small. If I'm going to paint it, it's kind of irrelevant to me. I just need the shape, right? right? So, you know, so that that has never really been that much of an issue. So I wouldn't say that I pursued nature photography as like I was trying to create really beautiful photographs. I was just acquiring material. I would say in the last, like I said, in the last year, it's definitely gotten a little bit better. So, so you're still doing a lot of photography? Uh, not, I haven't been doing, unfortunately, an awful lot of many things lately other than teaching. It's been really, really crazy. Um, and, and awesome at the same time. Um, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. I'm very grateful for, for the opportunities that have kind of come my way, uh, especially in these past couple of years. So that's fantastic. Can I ask you, like at this point, what have you settled down as your as your camera and your favorite lens? Um, I used to shoot Canon when I did all the the wedding photography, and then when I backed away from photography, I just kind of didn't really do too much. Um, and then the Fuji system started to get kind of popular, and I I just wanted something that I could just shoot for me, mm -hmm. um, and I liked the look of the system. It kind of had a bit of a vintage vibe to it. I really liked the interface on, on the screen. It was very easy and intuitive for me to find a lot of the stuff I wanted. And their glass is really nice. So I got into the Fuji system. And now I'm currently shooting with the X-T4. And then I love the 100-400 lens on that. It's, it's a bit of a beast. <laughs> Not really an everyday carry. Right. But uh, it's certainly does the job that's uh yeah but beautiful lens i mean if you're gonna do any birding you need at least 400 i mean yeah. i shouldn't say at least 400 you know 250 to 400 in that range is, is is appropriate depending on the lens it can get a bit weird when you get at the at the 400 range but mm -hmm. that must be pretty incredible no oh, i love it i love it it's a beautiful it's a beautiful lens i don't know how i've not had it for <laughs> or at least a lens of that focal length um so I always thought the 70 to 200 was going to be my forever lens, little 7200 2.8. Yeah. But uh, this is this is quite lovely. Yeah, I had a 7200 on my Canon for a while, then a 1.4 teleconverter, and um, but that was back when it was a, like a I think it was a 10D, 20D was my last Canon. That's been quite okay. a few years now. Yeah. Yeah, they make they make great cameras. 
if you look back, like at what point did you think, you know what, I'm going to make art or make drawing and painting more a substantial part of my life? What what pulled you into that? Yeah, no, fair enough. So we've done a little bit of moving around. And uh, one of the moves we made was to Ontario. And while we were there, I decided to take the opportunity to actually pursue architecture. So I uh, was doing some some night classes in architecture uh, through like the RAIC, which was great. And I enjoyed it. But I think it was maybe in the third year of, of study, uh, I was just doing pencil drawings, really the tool that I knew with respect to art. And um, I was kind of, you know, taken aside after a project and was strongly encouraged to do something, get some ink pens or <laughs> get some watercolor and just put some green in the trees. You, you really... The, what you're doing is is not good enough for for presentation. Wow. So okay. so I took that as permission to go buy art supplies. And uh, I mean I've always I've loved art, so you know if we, if we we would travel it'd be like okay, well where what what art gallery is in this town, right? Am I in a big city? Do they have a really good art gallery? What's what's on display there? You know, those would be the things that I would want to go see. It was just never something that I I actually did. So picking up a paintbrush and getting some paints, I was kind of like, oh, well, guess I'm an artist, right? I'm just going to, I'm going to paint something. Right. So I, I thought that was, that was kind of cool. And there was an allure to that. But shortly after that kind of happened, there's many aspects of the business of architecture that don't mesh well with my personality. Um, I love the art of of the architecture, <laughs> mm-hmm. but yet the, I'm not terribly inclined business-wise. So it was, I backed away from that, but I kept the paint. And yeah, my son, my oldest son, he was also kind of very into visuals and art. And where we lived in Ontario, there was a, a great little um, station house gallery in Whitby, Ontario. And they did a lot of local art contests, I guess, okay. encouraging the, the the community to you know put their work forward, enter it, and that sort of thing. And I remember that there was one coming up, and we were trying to encourage our oldest to put a piece in, and he was a little hesitant. And so you know, my wife and I spoke about it, and it's like, well, you know, maybe if you do it, might give him the nudge to also do it. So I went and to him and was like, Hey, I'm thinking about entering this. Do you want to, do you want to enter it? And he was like, well, that sounds like fun. So we both entered and we both hung in the, in the show. Wow. Um, and that was the first real watercolor that I ever actually produced. And then it sold, <laughs> which was also kind of <laughs> like, Oh, Hey, take that Van Gogh. um but uh yeah it was not my intention there to slam my favorite painter but um (laughs) so yeah so i was like okay this is that's kind of cool and so i really just kept up with the painting it gave me a little bit of a spark and and i really enjoyed the the medium of of watercolor 
you know, small little space. You don't need an awful lot of real estate to paint watercolors. For a long time, I, I was just set up on a kitchen counter. So, and I just plugged at it. You know, there's many things that I've, I've kind of attempted and then stepped away from. Watercolor is definitely the, the one thing. I stepped away from it for a little bit, but uh, came back to it. It's, it's been around, I think, the longest of, of all my interests. <laughs> and so how long have you been working with watercolor then? I would say it's coming up on 10 years, maybe 11. I think it's helpful for the listener to, to understand that perspective, because when you review, look at someone's work, you think, oh, I can't do that. I, did, I tried that today, and it, I didn't do that. And <clears throat> I think people... Um, just understand we're all on different journeys and when you look at Ian's work like that's that's 10 years of working with watercolor and watercolor I've taken I think I took six or seven starts at it before I finally like I got you <laughs> I know what you're trying to do to me watercolor I know where you want to <laughs> go on the paper and I've I finally understand how to deal with watercolor to some degree so now I can improve on that but I I hated watercolor every time I tried it you know as somebody who works in pencil it was very frustrating for me because I couldn't control the watercolor and I just did, hadn't spent enough time with it. And so it took a few tries. Yeah, I, I see. I think that's the thing with, with that medium though. And cause you, you use the word control and I am oriented that way with, if I let myself where I want to kind of control all the aspects. And I think for, at least for me, when I started finding my own kind of intrinsic success in watercolor was when I learned to kind of let a good chunk of that control go because it's that uncontrollable aspect of the watercolor that I find the most alluring, right? When the paint, when the water gets down on there and the paints mix with each other, these, these things that I can sort of coach and I can create, you know, different consistencies of paint and different hues and bring them together on the paper. But then I have to back off. And I, I find that part just awesome and very therapeutic uh, to some extent. I, it, it feels almost like a 3D puzzle in the sense that you're trying to put these pieces of color together, these objects, but then you're also working from the paper up. And so that's the thing I, I think the control bit was just around pacing myself around the layers mm. and i think that's the part that i finally embraced and understood i you know i know where i'm coming from here and i know mm -hmm. i can't overwork it because it's going to get cloudy and muddy <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, just have to, I have to respect the white but um I, i'm, I'm going to want to keep hearing what you're saying because <laughs> it's it helps me to understand that maybe i'm on the right track and uh, i think others who are trying watercolor I, th I think it can be scary. I've had oil painters on the on the podcast who are like, "I'm, I'm never t touching watercolor. <laughs> That's that is a weird, weird bit of work uh, to be able to play with watercolor." So, uh, yeah, yeah, you, you you do hear that quite often, um, often enough that it must actually be a thing. That you know, it's like watercolor is thought of as one of the hardest mediums, but it's it's. I think it's just that it's it's. It's the opposite, right? Uh, it's the opposite of, say, working with acrylic or oil, where you kind of, some start with the mids, 
and then build the darks and then add their lights with acrylic and oil. Um, some work dark forward, but with watercolor, you start with your lights, right? Your white of the paper is your, is your white. You got to try and save that. Do you ever, um, and, and we'll get into some of the tools and the colors and the palettes and all that, but do you ever come in with like a, a white gouache at the end to, to resurrect, you know, like a, a sparkle in the eye or things like that? Um, on and off. I'll use a little bit of gouache. Um, I'm more inclined lately to use a a box cutter. Okay. Because I'm using, you know, 140 pound, 100% cotton. So I can take a box cutter and and scratch back and get some whites, uh, clean up some edges or rough up an edge. Um, I find that's a little bit more versatile. I mean, gouache is, you know, you can tint it a little bit. You can put some, some... I just really just use white gouache, so I can put a little bit of watercolor in that. Right. But even, and I qualify this a lot when when I teach, and I and I will occasionally bring gouache in and encourage people to give it a try. Uh, it's it's not. Some people see it and they're like, oh, "Problem solved," right? But it isn't that. You still mm-hmm. do need to work on your your brush control. You do need to try to save some white and if you do manage to um, do a competent job of that and you do need to use a little bit of gouache to try to maybe fix a couple of things it tends to be more successful in concert with reserved white paper than on its own as a solution so because if it's just on its own it it can look a little off-putting so if that makes sense absolutely so I, I want to, I think, dive deeper into kind of your tools and techniques and, and, mm-hmm. and how you create your pieces. And because we, we we're going through this course with you, uh, with Etcher, and uh, I assume it's consistent with the way you actually produce your work. <laughs> so yeah. you draw your shape with pencil? Yes. Okay. And what I found interesting about the course, and which made me think, yes is that you use a 2B mechanical pencil. And I was so pleased to hear that <laughs> as yeah. a fan of 2B you, mechanical pencils. You you use the same thing then, yeah? Yep. Yeah, I was all over it when you were talking about it. I was, you know, we were all muted in the audience and our video was off, but I was cheering like, yes, yes. <laughs> I feel vindicated or, um, you know, accepted for, for using that kind of tool. So... Is that your default now when you sketch? Is is a two B mechanical pencil? Yeah, yeah, oh, ab- absolutely. I um, I find I find that softness. Uh, I mean, I, I suppose it, it's the same with with really anything that you get used to, right? That's just kind of what I've used the longest. It now feels the most natural to me. I've played around with four uh, B lead and you know even softer, but two B is like it's that's that Goldilocks and the three bears, right? This mm-hmm. one's too soft. This one's too hard, right? Two B is just right. So yeah, and and I I love the mechanical pencil. Um, I'm not one for you know putting a pencil on a sharpener. I have like a little pencil bag. So when I was carrying a sharpener around in there, you, know, you get graphite over everything, and then mm-hmm. you get it all over your hands. With the mechanical pencil, it's it's all in there. I don't have to take a sharpener. It's one less thing to carry around. I can put enough lead in there that if I'm, you know, traveling for a couple of weeks, um, 
I don't have to bring extra pencils. I'm all good to go. And the thing that I, an interesting byproduct, I guess, that, that I really do like about the mechanical pencil is I prefer to draw very lightly when I'm creating my shapes so that if I have to get rid of something, I can get rid of something. And with, uh, I, I use a 0.5 millimeter um, mm -hmm. mechanical pencil. So if I push too hard, it's just going to snap. So, right. so I appreciate that and kind of keeps me from, keeps me in line. You know, you know, muscle out a sketch and then uh, have something that's tough to clean up later. Yeah, I, uh, I agree. I, I think there's so many people that want to jump to like a 2H or a 4H for sketching because they feel it's a lighter pencil. And while it's a, but it's a lighter looking pencil, but it's a much harder lead. And so you end up denting your paper and then you come in later with something and it's like, where's this line from? Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You push too hard. You create some little valleys on your watercolor paper, and then yeah. the watercolor goes, "Oh, look, it's my new home. <laughs> right. I'm going to settle in here." <laughs> <laughs> That's a trick with graphite, right? Is that you dent your paper with a metal um, point of some sort, and then when you come in with your graphite, you can preserve those as white whiskers. And you may be inadvertently doing that by <laughs> pushing too hard with a two H or four H. So it was great to see, and I agree with the two B, like. If you're gentle, you can really, you can have it work from the equivalent of like a 4H all the way up to 6B um, yep. by layering. Like if you're just doing pencil, you can do it that way. But I was just impressed. I use a 0.3 mil, but I, I also have 0.5 as well. And um, yeah, I think it's, and to your point too, I used to use um, uh, clutch pencils with the 1.5 or 2 millimeter leads, but uh Carrying a sharpener around for those just made things messy. And that's the other great thing about the the mechanical 0.3 and 0.5 is there's no mess. There's no graphite everywhere, right? Now, were you using like the, the Stadler clutches? Yeah. Yeah, did, the Stadler. Okay. And, did uh, did the you company. know, take the cap off. Did you know there's a sharpener in it? Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've used that, but then the, the load bits end up getting all over the place. But I did find... It's true. Um, I don't... I don't know if it's Stadler or there's another company, but um, I can't reach it now. There is a small little tiny plastic sharpener you can get for these that has a reservoir for the lead uh, filings, which I found out about a, few, a couple of years ago. Oh, okay. So and and it ha and so it is a perfect little tool to sharpen it and contain the the little lead bit bits. But by that time, I've been so sold on, uh, especially the Pentel mechanical pencils that I just. Um, I, I will use the the clutch pencils for like larger, you know, eleven by seventeen, where I need to really get graphite down on a large area. But most of the time, right. it's it's the Pentel. So, are like, do you do you still do drawings where you don't apply watercolor? Like, will you just sketch something out and think, hmm? Like, do do you do like a few kind of storyboards around a new piece, or uh, how much use do you get out of pencil? And then I have a follow up. Okay, so yeah, not as not as as much i am um, I, I teach uh, one of the other things i teach locally here is a, like a beginner's drawing class um it's an in-person thing and i i'm very quick to to clarify that i'm not a pencil artist i don't really do fully rendered pencil drawings um i'm very interested in shape and I'll use the pencil to create the shapes because my intention is always to, in some way, shape or form, go in and put paint in there, right? Um, mm -hmm. 
So as far as, you know, complete drawings in pencil, it's not something I'll spend a lot of time doing, but I, I will, you know, open up a dry media sketchbook and, and it has to be a dry media sketchbook. Otherwise I'm just going to stick paint in it. I know it. Um, so, and I'll just, you know, hash out some shapes and do some quick shading, little value studies, be it if it's a landscape or a bird or, or, you know, whatever it is that I'm thinking about working on. And that's, you know, especially if it's a newer shape or species, something that I haven't really done before. It's always good to, to sit around and, and hack some of that out and, and see how it goes. So in those instances, I will do it. Um, and I love doing thumbnails when I'm going to paint a landscape because I just want to see the values broken down. And, and the values actually help me break the overall scene into shapes too, so that I don't get too detail-oriented. Otherwise, we'll, I focus on the, the strangest things, as I'm sure many people do. Yeah, been there, done that. How important is drawing to me to being a good watercolor artist? Hmm. I believe it's incredibly important. Though, you know, there would be a situation where it might not be so much, you know, if someone's more inclined to use watercolors for abstract paintings and Mm -hmm. forms and things like that it's negligible but if you're you know intending to fill believable shapes in or even distorted shapes that you want to draw you you do need some competency in in creating overall shapes so i i think that that more observation is i think what what is more important right and and then trying to um keep in mind what your goal is, right? And so if you're creating a drawing and you know you're going to be painting in it, I tend to try to, to like say, for example, with birds, um, I'm not interested in painting all the, the tiny little feathers on a wing, right? I, I'll mm-hmm. use paint and texture to give the impression of those parts because where I want to spend my detail is, is really working in and around the face. And I'll kind of go through... Uh, progression wise from like the tail to the head as far as how much detail i'll include from less to more from the tail to the head so drawing is very very important because that's how you're going to create your shapes that that you're going to go into yeah i thought and there's probably still room for people to join this extra class because you can watch the first episode or the first uh lesson now and be ready for the next lesson which will be when when this is released, it'll be probably less than a week for for lesson number two. But what I thought was great about your first one is that you covered drawing. And the mm-hmm. way that you approached it, I think, made it really accessible to people in understanding how important observation is with regard to at least drawing, um, in, in breaking the shapes down, in understanding the interactions, in leveraging the measurements and building a scale that helps to represent where, you know, where the beak would sit and how big is the beak relative to the width of the head and things like that. I thought you just did a brilliant job in enabling people to look at birds differently. So I thought you did a, I thought that was great. I'm glad. I'm, and the cool thing is that it, it applies to so many other things too, right? It's not just birds, that way of thinking and, and seeing and, and observing, right? It, it applies to any shape. And I try to be, well, I don't know how clear I was in the, in the first edger class, but, you know, at some point I, I do try to remove 
or suggest the removal of associating what you're seeing with the thing, right? Like, oh, it's a, you know, it's a hummingbird. I can't draw a hummingbird, okay? The head's very round. Can you draw a circle? Yeah, I can draw a circle. Well, and then, you know, you're already at about 30% of the bird. Hey, can you draw an oval? Yeah, I can draw an oval. Well, now you're at 70%. Can you do a triangle? Yeah, well, that's the rest of the bird. Now you're done, right? And then it's just figuring out the proportion of those things and orienting them in a in a good manner. And next thing you know, you're there. So yeah, it's a lot about all that kind of stuff. I thought that was really good. And, and yeah, to your point, you know, birds are simpler than maybe a moose, but it's still breaking it down into shapes that you can manage, right? And then understanding the perspective of that, you know, the, the I'm looking at your, your moose picture right now on Instagram, so that's why I'm mentioning the moose. You know, understanding where the moose's nose, uh, you know, drops down with regard to its uh, its leg, right? At what point does it hit that? And, and uh, understanding, you know, the difference between the distance from the tip of the nose to the tip of the eye versus from the eye to the tip of the ears. And I just thought that exercise, if you, like the extra course is not expensive. If you just, if you have trouble drawing and you just learn, if you just watch that one, and I'm sure the other ones are great too, but that one class will help you a lot with understanding drawing. Well, the other ones don't exist yet. They've yet to be created. So hopefully well, I'm sure they're going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a question for you. Why, why do most of your birds not have legs? <laughs> so I, I, um, contrary to what many people might think, I mean, if you dig back a little bit, uh, you'll see that, that, uh, a lot of the sketchier ones that I was doing a couple years ago do have legs. Mm-hmm. It's not that I, that I have an aversion to them or anything against, <laughs> uh, bird feet. You know, there was a while there where uh, I was doing a bunch of, uh, Instagram lives and there was like a hashtag being thrown around down with bird feet or something like that <laughs> based on, on that. But, you know, I think really at some point just in, and I don't know if it was maybe during a demo I had given uh, and a matter of time, I just kind of left it out. Maybe it was in a sketch or something. And I just kind of looked at it and I preferred it. And that was very much in line with, you know, the things that I like to focus on most in, in art, which is shape, value, and texture. And then kind of the shape gives the form. And with birds, they're so curvy right? Mm -hmm. This nice line that runs from the tail, runs up around the the belly towards the head. And then, you know, if it's got a longer beak or even if it's a shorter beak or, you know, a different kind of pose, it's got a a very nice flow to it. And then in the middle of that flow, there's like these sticks that just stick out. So it's kind of like, well, maybe I just don't put those in. And it just kind of, it kind of stuck and uh, <laughs> I've taken a bit of flack for it, and, you know, it's fine. I think they look great. I saw somebody, I don't know if it was on Instagram or in the course itself, but I saw somebody mention that. Like, yeah, I, that's a question I've been meaning to, <laughs> to ask you as well. But I would agree. Like, I think the thing that it, it brought to me is that, you know, sometimes when we capture the things we want to draw, we don't necessarily have to get it all down right. Um, some people may be scared of drawing feet. Because mm-hmm. if, if you draw this most beautiful goldfinch or a downy woodpecker, and then you get the feet wrong, right? 
and, and you're not confident in your feet, then it's okay, right? It's okay to walk away from that. I've seen people that don't even finish the bird, right? They just have suggestions of what the bird is doing. And, mm-hmm. and it's okay to do that. It doesn't have to be ultra-realistic. But I wanted to highlight something that you talked about in the course. Can you describe, the, from your perspective, how you build a bird foot? Because I thought that was very funny. And that was very good. <laughs> it was very good. I don't know if it's going to come across well in audio, but maybe you could describe a bird foot. Stick triangle sausage hook. <laughs> there we That's, go. Uh, pretty much, pretty much it, right? The two sticks that stick out of the body. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, the the. It, it, I mean, it's it's going to vary, and it's a it's a admittedly a cheeky response to the question when it comes up, but then you kind of look at it. And then you actually look at that, the, the part of the foot that the toes come out of, and it is kind of triangular shaped. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the little bits of the links of the toe. I don't know um, the proper biological names for these things. So forgive me when I, you know, <laughs> the little links, right? They look like they can, they can be like little sausages, you know, maybe not mm-hmm. like, you know bratwursts or anything like that, but maybe something a little longer and thinner, depending on the bird. A little breakfast sausage, maybe. Yeah. And then at the end, you just got these these long hooks. So stick, triangle, sausage, hook. Um, I like that. Yeah, it works. Jeez, I wonder if that should be the podcast title or something. The stick, triangle, sausage, hook. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And really, when you're, when you're drawing your forms, right, if you're just doing these things lightly, you can just rough in some the stick, sausage, triangle, hook kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then that can give you your shape and you can kind of take a look at it and see if it's positioned well. Does it look like the, the weight of the bird is, is bearing correctly? It doesn't look like it's off balance or whatever. Mm-hmm. Because the way that they're going to perch on a stick or a branch or whatever, you know, it's just like when we stand, right? If we lean over to one leg, the weight's bearing over one foot. It's the same thing for them. So, you know, we just look to see where is the overall balance on the bird and make sure that those things are positioned well. And just with that idea of stick, triangle, sausage, hook, we can just really lightly put those shapes in. And then once we see that it's positioned well and the balance looks good, then we can go in and refine it a little more with, you know, in your case, pencil or maybe defining it a little a little bit more with the pencil and actually committing <laughs> right. to it, that kind of thing, right? So. And I will include uh, a few links to some of the stuff that we've been talking about, as I always do. Um, the show notes are quite complete. So as we're talking about some of the birds and some of the work here, I will include links to all of that in the show notes. So maybe even a deli for actual images of sausage. <laughs> right. Yeah, we'll dig up some, I'll dig up something on Pixabay or, or uh, Unsplash mm-hmm. or something just to remind people what sausages look like. So. Yeah. <laughs> Some breakfast uh, breakfast links, yeah. Yeah, if you're going to draw an American coot, you're going more like a New Orleans andouille length in sausage. <laughs> this is, uh, now, now I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked about the pencil. Um, maybe let's take a little half step back to talk about the paper. So you talked about 140 pound. Do you have a preference of paper manufacturer? Or are you just using cold press, you know, 140 pound, which is about, what, 300, 310 GSM? Is that your... And do you use a block uh, versus a, a pad? So I have, I will generally go to a full sheet of, of watercolor. Yeah, 300 GSM, 140 pound. For wildlife, I, I like to work on 
a cold press surface. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not very capable on hot press. I tend to make a big mess of it. I do like the cold press for that quite a bit. Mm-hmm. It's not rough enough that it's it's going to make drawing difficult. For landscapes and things, I, I will tend to gravitate towards a rough texture. But for the wildlife stuff, um, especially when I'm teaching, I, I use cold press all the time just because it's more readily available. And I'm well aware of the fact that if someone's going to go into a store and get art supplies for a course and they're just going to walk in and go, I need, I don't know, 100, 100% cotton, watercolor paper, there's a good chance of what they're going to get handed is going to be a cold press surface. Right. So it's just made a lot of sense for me to kind of teach from from that perspective as opposed to being like, oh, well, it's got to be rough. Right. You know? Do you think people need to stress about the kind, the manufacturer? I mean, as long as it's cold press and it's up around 300 GSM, do you think that's enough? Well, the weight is, I think, important. Mm-hmm. You know, you definitely want something in and around 140 pounds. The other, I think, important factor is that it's 100% cotton, right? Because it, it will stand up to, I don't know if abuse is the right word, but it, it will take a, a little bit more of what you might throw at it than a mixed paper. So ones that I, I go to regularly, I mean, Arches is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do often recommend that when I'm teaching. And again, you know, it's because it's readily available. You can find it globally. So rather than maybe some niche local paper or something like that, where it's like, well, I don't know where, where to get that. But I've used uh, Saunders Waterford before. Uh, I quite like that, but it's just difficult for me to find it locally. I have to order it by mail. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Fabriano Artistico is also a really nice paper that fortunately uh, some local uh, store chain has started carrying it. So it is something I can I can get now. Um, there's a Chinese paper, Baohong, which is also quite great. It's uh, It's got a really nice texture to it that I really like. It's a cold press. They have rough textured paper as well. I've only used their cold press, mm-hmm. but I mean, it's very well priced. It's 100% cotton and it's got a very consistent grain structure to it that I find it was a little bit weird at first, but by the time I'd gotten around to the third time of painting on it, I was like, I really like this. It's quite quite nice i've tried hot press i i don't mind it too much i've done a couple pieces on it i feel a bit silly for liking it so much because <laughs> it's a bit harder to, to to wrangle the 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 colors where i need them to go but to your point about the textures i was surprised at how much the textures vary when i'm looking at arches versus um i've got some etcher watercolor sketchbooks <clears throat> and i just bought some hanamule uh uh, eight by ten watercolor paper for my printer to do prints on, <clears throat> and the three of those are so very different. But I have to say, cold press is beautiful stuff to touch, like to, to handle, to paint on. I just it's it's rough, so you know if you're doing ink and and things like that, it's a bit more challenging. But it feels special. It really does feel special working on cold press. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, and I think the most important thing really is pick something that you know. 100% cotton, 140 pounds. You know, if you're going to go with cold press, go with cold press. And then whatever you decide, uh, bite the bullet. Get a whole bunch of it. Buy like, you know, 10 full sheets or something. And then just mm-hmm. commit to not changing it until you've worked through every piece of paper. Right. You will learn more about the paper than if you keep switching the brand. Because not only is the texture different from brand to brand, 
the sizing is different. The way it's going to absorb the watercolor is going to be different, you know? So you could be trying to correct a technique or work on a technique and then you change the paper and then all of a sudden it's behaving differently and you're not sure whether it's you or the paper. And if you know, you're anything like me, well, I'm going to blame the external thing (laughs) as opposed to take responsibility for it. Well, it's got to be the paper. It can't be me. But you know what I found, because I did decide to do that at one point, I just, I bought 10 full sheets of, I think it was Fabriano Artistico. And I just committed to working through every single sheet of that until I was done. And yeah, as it turns out, most of the time, if not a hundred percent of the time, it it was me (laughs) every time. (laughs) Right. So, so it really kind of forces you to work on your technique because you're not, you're, I used to say this to my kids all the time. I still do sometimes say that to myself too. minimize the variables. Right. Right. So you're changing your paper all the time. That's a variable. You can, you can make that part of your workflow more consistent by sticking to something. Same with paint. Yeah, exactly. I mean, your points well taken about getting the right paper, right? Like it doesn't really matter when, once you get to 300 GSM or 140 pounds, and it's cold press, and it's 100% cotton, it really doesn't manu- matter the manufacturer. But if you're using something in a, in a ring-bound book uh, in an art store that is down you know, around 90 pounds or something like that, that could prove problematic. So if you can do watercolor, at least get the, the heavyweight cold press paper. Mm-hmm. And, and as you say, eliminate the variables. That's the paper I'm committing to. You know, you want to change a brush, maybe. You can do that, but or add a new brush, but uh, we'll get into that as well. But th- that that's really good. That's really good advice. So let's talk about paint. Because what I noticed about, uh, and what's great about the course you're doing now, is that there is a clear list of materials and supplies. And what's interesting is that, uh, you, I think you talked earlier, I'm not sure if it was on, on recording, uh, we were recording it or not, but, you know, this this reason to go shopping for art supplies, and you were that for me. <laughs> Because <laughs> there was a bunch of, <laughs> I think, those optional paints that you could buy. And I'm sitting here with looking at, what is this, seven tubes of paint that you suggest. And it's like, I don't have that color. I'm going to get that one. And and I had, I think, 12, 12 different watercolors to begin with. So, um, yeah, I went and bought all these ones because it's like, that's pretty. I'm going to get that one. So I wanted to ask you, <laughs> you know, when you get into the paints, once again, I guess two questions is manufacturer, like if you're getting like a Daniel Smith or, or something else, does it really matter at that point, whether it's Winsor Newton or whatever the case? And then your palette size, because you have a, a large selection of paints. So maybe let's talk about the manufacturer and then we'll talk about the palettes. Okay. So most of the paints that I'm using are by Daniel Smith. So, you know, your artist quality paints which from my understanding that basically means they're going to have a higher pigment load as opposed to a student grade paint. But, you know, if someone's looking to take a class that I'm teaching and they're like, and I don't have a lot of money. I mean, there's a lot of options out there. Sometimes it just means you're going to need to add a little bit more pigment to get, you know, a nice, good saturated mix. But I do really like the Daniel Smith paints. I've been using them for, for quite some time now. I've got a couple of Holbeins and Schminky that I like and a few other things that I'll pull out from time to time. But I would say that like 90% of what's in my palette is, is by them. And I I do, what if it's like that 100-mile diet or something like that, where you source all your food out from close vicinity to where you live. So 
I'm, I live in the Pacific Northwest in BC. So uh, Daniel Smith is in Seattle. Okay. So I do like that they're kind of close by. So go knock on their door. <laughs> well, I, I, I have. I've gone down there a couple times. Have you? So That's awesome. yeah. Unfortunately, their, their store is, is closing. They're no, no longer going to have their big storefront uh, south of the, the main part of the city. Disappointing. Yeah, it was it was, a, it was pretty cool. If you ever have art supply gas, that's a terrible place to be. <laughs> or a great place to be, I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I it was surprising when I bought these seven tubes what I what the the cash register popped up with because uh yeah, I had to go to Winsor Newton for a couple of them because that they didn't have them in Daniel Smith, but yeah, the premium stuff is not cheap, but it it makes a huge difference. I've got some cheap paint here that I've used and um uh, it, I'm not happy with it, and so mm-hmm. getting some decent stuff is helpful. So that that's good to hear. And I guess the other question was, like, it's a matter of the number of colors you're working with. Uh, you've got a palette. You mentioned in the the course, people were like, "Where'd you get the palette? Did you, you know, where did you get it made?" And all this kind of stuff. And I think, oh yeah, yeah, it can be overwhelming with the number of colors. And do people need to be concerned about that? about the number of colors that they need to use. I mean, you're doing different types of birds that have different color needs, but what's your comment on that? Like, do you need 20 tubes of paint? Well, I mean, if this was, you know, eight eight years ago, me, then I'd be like, well, yeah, you need you need all of them. <laughs> just just need to keep getting them. But, you know, it, that's really, it's really changed a lot for me in, in the past couple of years. And again, this this goes to the same sort of idea as with the the paper, and you know, just committing to something for for a while. Um, and what I committed to was, you know, a, a split primary palette, right? Rather than thinking, oh, this yellow's pretty, and this yellow's pretty, and you know, with something like Daniel Smith, it can really make your head spin because they, I think they have like two hundred and fifty six different paints, right. right? Like that's a pretty big palette. I gotta have to drive my truck and lay all the paints down in the bed and then just dip into the back of the truck to get at each, <laughs> each pigment. Um, there's my palette. It's a F one fifty. Yes. So, you know, but going to a split primary palette where you're then just thinking about, you know, your, your, your primaries and having, you know, some divergence between each in the form of a warm and a cool yellow, a warm and a cool red, a warm and a cool blue. And then realizing that, you know, that divergence between the warm and a cool pairing is where you can find your other versions of your yellow or your red or your blue. And then when you pick the pigments that are, you know, closer to each other, like say a warm yellow and a, and a warm red, then in between those, I'm going to get nice bright oranges. So right. you then have access to a lot of the color wheel with fewer paints. And then I supplement that with a selection of earth hues, just because of some of the qualities of the earth pigments. For example, like a yellow ochre, you know, it's going to settle into a wash against a blue much different than a synthetic yellow, where, you know, we'd be terrified I'm going to end up with greens where I don't want them. Right. But I can put a nice light wash of a yellow ochre up against cobalt. And, you know, if I'm careful, I'm not going to end up with unwanted green. So I'm going to keep the characteristic of the of the yellow because the earth pigment is heavier, right? So I can make it mix if I wanted to, but if I just lay them up gently against each other, it's they will keep a lot of their integrity intact. Right. I think what was interesting when you were talking about your palette 
it does look like a wonderful palette. The uh, and I don't say that about everyone's palette, <laughs> but you mentioned neutral tint, and people were like, "What's neutral tint?" and and you know, what does that mean? And I went into the chat and said, "Well, I, I use a Payne's gray, but maybe you can speak to what you mean by neutral tint and the advantage of that, because I think a lot of people caught that. It was a bit of a surprise to them when you talked about neutral tint. Yeah, so so neutral tint. I, I always say the, the core of my palette is is split primary with some earth tones and then a bunch of stuff I'm just too lazy to mix. So a neutral tint is is essentially or anything I, that 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 well in my palette I refer to as my dark neutral. So it could be neutral tint, it could be Payne's gray, um, it could be Payne's blue gray, could be anything that's really a neutral that's not black. And, you know, that falls in line with this notion of things I'm just too lazy to mix. I could take an ultramarine and a burnt umber or a burnt sienna, and I could mix them to get a gray, a neutral, to tone down another pigment to make it less bright. Or I can just have a well in my palette that has a dark neutral in it, and I can just get it that quickly. So, you know, I because I like to work with a lot of wet on wet, and, you know, I like to focus most of my attention on the actual painting itself once I'm applying a brush to it. It's nice to have some things in the palette that are just ready to go. So I have a neutral that I can get at if I need to tone down something or intensify, you know, a shadow value or something like that. You know, I can take a dark neutral and add a little bit of violet to it if I want a little bit of violet in the shadow. And that's just mixing now two paints instead of having to make my neutral with a combination of ultramarine and whatever I want to mix that with or however else I'm going to mix that neutral and then adding the violet to it. I just grab one, put a little bit of something else in it and then put it in. And it allows me to be a little more in tune with the painting and respond quicker to, you know, I have a plan when I go into a painting, but Mm -hmm. sometimes it changes something the way the watercolor might settle into a certain area I'm like, oh, you know what? I hadn't really thought about this, but you know, maybe a compliment is kind of coming to mind and I want to put something like that in. So I have like a lot of holes that I filled in in my palette that uh, tend to be mixtures that I create uh, on a regular basis. So neutral tint is one of those things. It's just a very versatile paint to have for me. Yeah, I, th- I think when I finally heard about that and figured it out at some point, maybe last year, it changed completely how I was approaching watercolor. And I think it was one of those things that made it easier for me to, to like, you know, build the shadows where I need them and, and find, find the colors I was looking for, right? Instead of struggling so much with, mm-hmm. what do I do with this cobalt blue? Do I, like, I don't want to use black, but, uh, you know, it, and it just that with the neutral tint, it just provided so many more opportunities and, and options for, you know, the shadows and, and some of the darks that aren't quite dark, I'm looking at your downy woodpecker and and things like that, where there's an opportunity to maybe leverage some of that versus just going with a, a light wash of black or something, right? So yeah, and I think in that in that downy woodpecker, that's uh, like a neutral tint with a little bit of ultramarine in it, just to give it a bit, make it a bit cooler. Yeah, it does look. Yeah, you can see that there's some work done on that, especially on the uh, on the forward leading wing there as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, brush. You have a specific 
kind of brush because I noticed you have links in your Instagram. So we'll share that. We'll talk about your um, social media profiles at the end and, and where people mm-hmm. can find you. But you provide links to a couple of brushes and things like that. Yeah. So two brushes that I use the most um, are actually those ones that are linked in in there. And I just I was getting asked about them so much that that's why I put those links there. But I historically have kind of preferred a combination of uh, a 12 round and an eight round. Those kind of have been sizes that, again, along with the paper, they were just, I decided this is what I'm using and I'm now using this for a while. And so I don't know if I just adapted or if they adapted to me. I mean, I don't know, but that size of brush, I really like that pairing. It, I can get to quarter sheets, half sheets, and do most of, of what I want to do with that combination. Sometimes I'll need something slightly bigger if it's a big wash. And then there was more specific to the brushes that I'm now using. They're kind of sized similarly, but they're a calligraphy style brush. So it's the Flow brush and the Happy Dot um, from Oriental Art Supply in California. And then I guess shortly after the pandemic took hold, um, I was sort of slated to start a bird course at a local art center and it got canceled, understandably. Mm-hmm. And I think my way of retaliating, <laughs> if I can call it that, <laughs> right. was to then, okay, well, I guess I don't get to do this course. So I ended up going on Instagram almost every day for uh, a better part of a number of months. And I just started painting birds every day on on IG Live. And to kind of keep things interesting for me, I just started switching some things up from time to time. And one of the things that I pulled out of my jar were these brushes from back when I did the Sumi painting or tried the Sumi painting is a more accurate statement. And um, I just kind of fell in love with them. It's like, these are great just the the control and the variation of control I was able to get from them from having them you know fully saturated and just controlling a bit of moisture in the tip to getting really fine lines with it to as they start to you know lose moisture in the brush and the tip starts to splay a bit and then you can get really interesting textures tiny little you know hair feathers and things like that mm. yeah they're 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 great I really like them and they just they just look cool, I think. Yeah, they do look cool. <laughs> so, yeah. I want one of those little stands where I can just hang them. But you know I don't have that. <laughs> Maybe the guy that made your palette will make you a brush stand, right? Maybe <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I if I need anything that fancy. Maybe just a couple of, of uh of whatever command strip hooks or something would probably yeah. be fine. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> So, and and I appreciate you doing that because everybody, I think when you get artists together, there's always the conversation about what do you like? What are your tools? And I appreciate being open and sharing that because I think for some, it can get tiresome people asking about what are you using? What is your tool? And this kind of stuff. And that's probably what uh, prompted you to put it into your uh, Instagram profile as links as well. Is It's an easy mm-hmm. way to point to people and say, there, that's my stuff. So I appreciate you doing that and talking through it. Yeah, I was just to make it easier people right if i can if i can make it easier and help then i'm i'm willing to do that have you ever done any digital work like uh, through procreate on ipad or uh using a wacom have you ever done digital or is your space analog 
I've done it, but no one's ever seen it. Okay. <laughs> it's it's a actually that's not true. I I think I, I might have I might have pushed a couple things up to Instagram uh, in the past, but uh, I think I've probably archived those. I, I like it. It's it's uh, it's an interesting tool. I, I know that there's like some adhesive that you can put on the surface of the iPad, so it feels a bit more like paper when you're using the pencil. Yep. Uh, I haven't tried that. I would want to guinea pig someone else's iPad and see if if it actually does the trick. But there is there is th- that lack of texture that drawing on a tablet has that. I find a little unnerving. I like to feel the tooth. If you're ever in Ottawa, I've got <laughs> I've got a screen protector on mine I love, and I also have a big board that you can lay the the, the iPad in, which makes drawing on it so much nicer. So, oh really? If, yeah. So if you're ever in the area, let me know. But uh, yeah, the I use a Sketchboard Pro. They call it, and it's basically a drawing tab, a drawing board that is probably like two feet by three feet. Yep. A bit smaller than that. And then you simply embed your iPad in the middle, and it's surrounded by silicone, which kind of keeps it in place. Okay. And it's it's it can it can incline, um, it can tilt up by about twenty thirty degrees. And then what's nice is now you've got the iPad in this middle of this thing where you can just move your arm around, so you can draw with your arm instead of just drawing with your wrist. Uh. It completely has changed how I work with it. I can still doodle on the couch and stuff, but and you could you could lay this in your lap, but uh, yeah. That with the paper, like, which is what I use. And I use the paper, like, I don't mind drawing on the glass. I do appreciate the texture of the paper, like, which is what I use as a, as a screen protector. But for me, the reason I like the the paper, like, is because I don't have a fingerprint problem, which drove me nuts just using glass because you're always, the light hits it and you see all your fingerprints and it's like, ooh, that's not fun to look at. <laughs> but the paper, like, is, is brilliant and it's it's way better now than the original because the original, if you had a white canvas, you'd see all the, the rainbow effect and now it's, it's okay. not there. Oh, interesting. So um, always open whenever you're in Canada's capital. Yeah. Let me know. So I wanted to talk about uh, your teaching uh, because you've mm-hmm. done a lot of workshops. We're, we've talked a, f- a little bit, uh, quite a bit about this at your class that you're doing and, and you're doing, I think, another, I think they were suggesting an advanced one maybe in January. Yeah, so we're doing, so I've done a couple of things for them earlier this year. And my understanding is that they went really well and were well received. So they came to me with the idea of creating a beginner's watercolor course wrapped around wildlife. So we're, we're going to cover all the fundamentals for, you know, getting started in watercolor. But the context is a bird, a buffalo, you know, that type of thing. And when we're done, there's five sessions that we're we're doing in this course um, spread out between started last Saturday going into, I think, the first Saturday of the new year. And then following that, I'm going to do two master classes for them, which are going to be slightly longer in length than the the classes of this course. And I think that they'll, you know, for some, where they feel that they're at after doing this course, it might be a logical move into focusing more on how I would complete one of my paintings, Mm -hmm. because it's going to be a lot more involved. And it also, you know, be open to people that maybe hadn't taken the, the, the beginner's course too, that might just want to work on how I do my paintings, I suppose. Right. So that's cool. Uh, 
like you've done when I look at your site and um, you know all the stuff you've done with Etcher and, and even on Instagram, I would consider that to some degree teaching as well. Mm-hmm. What do you like about teaching? What do you like about doing the workshops? That's a really good question. I mean, there's you know, I I, I didn't set out to teach <laughs> at, at all. <laughs> it kind of you know it came to to me, um, and I was quite hesitant at first. But now having done it for, for a while, I, I, what I love, I mean, I love all of it. I think it's great when I see someone and something clicks and it's like, you know, I've been trying, I've taken a whole bunch of classes and I just haven't figured this thing out. And now I get it for some strange reason. Um, I mean, I, I think for me, I never attended an art school. I just kind of stubbornly went at it for a long time, try to paint or draw something every day. And so I don't have, I mean, even I'm talking about birds, I like to paint birds, but I don't have a vocabulary about it. I'm, I'm not, you know, a naturalist. I mean, I love nature, don't get me wrong, but, or I'm not a biologist. I don't know all the anatomy parts. And so it's the same with art. I like to do it, but I don't, necessarily know an awful lot about I know what I know from making the mistakes and learning from it so I teach from that point of view and I think that it connects for people because they're there and in many senses I'm still there too because I'm still learning as well mm-hmm. and you know I always I always try to maintain that that mindset because there's always something to try to figure out and get better at um, and so I, I think there's, there's a comfortability there. So when people get that, they're like, oh, this makes sense now in the way that I've explained it, because I'm just, I'm talking like a goof, right? <laughs> like there's no, there's no pretense. And I, I, I want them to understand it. And I, I will describe these things as simply as possible because that's my understanding of them, that it resonates and then they get the spark and then they keep painting. And the next thing you know, maybe someone that had kind of surreptitiously followed me on Instagram is now actively posting and they're painting. And I love that. I think that's awesome. When you're teaching, you have to turn and look at yourself and your process and watch what you're doing, you know, kind of watching yourself and how you, how you build, how you construct, and then being able to document that and then share it with others. Has, has there been anything that's kind of surprised you or that you learned from that process of, of looking at yourself where you're thinking, huh, I've been doing this the wrong way for a while, or that's interesting. Why am I doing it this way? Like, has, has that kind of part of the teaching where you're trying to, to break down your process, have you learned anything from that? Has that taught you anything? Wow. That's a, that's a tough question. I think it's really reinforced having a process for me because you know when once when i'm teaching i can't just sit there and and freeform and you know hope that they're going to actually take anything from the lesson you know i i i you know i i've been a part of you know some workshops where the instructor kind of just does their thing there's not really a lot of explanation about what's going on and 
you just kind of sit there mystified by the whole thing. And, you know, that's never been, been my, my approach. I talk a lot when I'm teaching, I'm, I'm verbally explaining almost every thought that's coming into my head mm-hmm. as I'm going through the process. So, you know, I, I think that that appreciation for process in my work has, has really grown since the teaching. So that's definitely something that's, that's come out of it for me. And I, and I find that, that in, in, in accepting that too, there's a lot of freedom to be had when you have a process, right? Because I kind of know, oh, I'm at this stage. So if I kind of want to go this way with it, I can. And there's things that are going to happen later that I don't have to worry about right now because I know it's coming, right? Or sometimes it's like, I want to do this. Right. I mean, you've got to kind of document your own program before you can hack it. And uh, so yeah. it's, uh, yeah. I mean, you're really good at it. So what do they say? We must first learn the rules in order to know how to break them properly. Exactly. Right? Or something like that. I'm probably, it's a terrible misquote, possibly. I don't know. Like I wanted to, um, I want to spend a little bit of time on, on, uh, on social media as well, but I'm going to connect the two with this question. Do you think that doing the Instagram lives is, has, has helped you in being an educator, being a teacher? Uh, because I, to your point about some people doing this mystical thing, you do see some people on Instagram, Twitch, where it's like, I, I know you're there watching me, but I'm not going to engage with you because I'm doing magic. Um, and, and you're not like that at all. So do you think Instagram Live, I'm thinking about an artist who's maybe thinking about doing one. Would you encourage them to do that for the purpose of helping share how they do things? Oh, absolutely. I think, I mean, there, there is definitely an interest level for people that, that go on there and, and want to see things being done and, and, and created. And, and, you know, for, from my standpoint as, as an instructor, I think it was a really invaluable tool because there's no response on Instagram. There's no clapping. Right? There's no, there's no back and forth. <laughs> right. There's comments. People can make comments. And then for me to comment back, you know, I, I often have to stop doing what I'm doing to type or whatnot. And then I, the phone would be mounted and, and painting da- and pointing down at the at the work surface. So and it's like a, a flexi cable. <laughs> so if I were to try to type on it, then it would just kind of bounce <laughs> around. Right. Um, and then people would get sick, and then I have to deal with that, which <laughs> would be no good thing. So you know, and having that that one sided conversation really put me in a position where. I don't know, I was just kind of filling the filling the air with the sound of my own voice. And the only thing that I had going on was what I was thinking about as I was painting. And so I just started doing that. This is I'm doing this now, and now I'm doing this, and now I'm thinking about mixing these colors, and I'm mixing these colors this way because of reason X or and I would just start getting comments from people that they really appreciated that insight because I don't normally get it. Right. So, and it wasn't, I didn't set out to do that intentionally. It was just a, maybe a byproduct of awkwardness when I've got no back and forth with people. Um, but then it just kind of stuck and I just teach the same way, even when I'm in person, which then when you have like a bunch of people in front of you, it's a little unnerving when you stop 
and it's like, cause I do like to pause for mm-hmm. questions. It's like, does anybody have any questions? And they're like, it's crickets. I'm like, seriously, no one's got any questions. Like, no, no, we get it. We understand because you haven't shut up. So, <laughs> Well, in the next Tetra course, because you did that a couple of times, and I think people were just soaking everything in, right? But, uh, you know, the next Tetra course, I'll ask you what you had for breakfast or <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll get some questions out to you. So I noticed with uh, your courses, you've also done a, a whack of urban sketching courses, too. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you look back in your profile, you see a lot of ink work with the micron pens and the multiliners and things like that. So is that something that still interests you separate from, you know, drawing the animals and the birds as well? Yeah. I mean, is that the architectural component reaching out? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, I would say the the two main things that I'm really focused in on these days are, is the wildlife, primarily birds, and then the, the urban sketching. I like hatching with ink pens and, you know, yeah. I like, the, I like that kind of look. So, you know, it doesn't work so well on the birds. I prefer paint there, but you know, a nice building or a little bit of foliage or something like that. And some ink pens with some hatching in there. I find it very, very pleasing. So, and just the whole process of hatching, um, it's very relaxing. I want to ask you a technical question about one of your pieces here, because I, you know, I do this with every artist I have on. I'm always kind of scrolling through their their profile. It, it I feel like it's it ends up being a bit of a symphony in what you say and what I see in you speaking and what I'm looking at on your Instagram. All this to say, you did a great blue heron. Uh, this is four weeks ago, I think, and you have wonderful highlights of the white feathers that kind of dangle like bits in front of a blue heron. And I'm wondering, how did you render those? Is that coming in with a with a, a, a box cutter afterwards? Because like those those whites are coming down through areas that are um, that are quite a mix of color. And I'm just curious how you rendered that bit. So that, yeah, so okay, that is uh, white white gouache. All right, cool. Really, okay. really thick white gouache in there, and then there's also a little bit of scraping back with a box cutter. Okay. So a, a little bit of both of those. Cool. Because that I, I'm glad I asked you that because I saw this and I'm thinking, yes, I know about those white dangly bits. <laughs> and when they're mm-hmm. up against mm-hmm. that that beautiful brown t- texture you have going from the kind of the almost the yellowish yellow ochre at the bottom right up to the um, to the gray at the top and then being able to overlay that, I was just curious how you did it. So thank you for clarifying that. I'll include a link to this in the show notes, but it's a wonderful piece. I love that one. I'll usually try to do a little bit with the brushwork. If you look closely, there is a little bit of white um, that's in the direction of those feathers that was Mm -hmm. kind of saved when I laid that initial wash down. Mm -hmm. And then I like to save a little bit of white to kind of keep the gouache believable. Right. So as long as I have a little, I can put a little bit of gouache later on and it, and it, uh, it tends to work a lot better than just the gouache in isolation. So I don't want to keep you too long, but we'll we'll cover a couple more things and then I'll I'll, I'll let you go. I, this has been so informative. People are going to find it so very helpful. Oh, good. I'm glad. I wanted to um, maybe just ask you, like, where do you see yourself maybe in, let's say, two years from now with regard to your work and your teaching? What, what's, what's on the horizon for Ian? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um. You know, like, like if you were to ask me, you know, two, like even two and a half years ago, you know, wh- what do you think you're going to be doing in, in six months? Um, you know, you think you're going to be teaching? 
I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> like I'd done, I'd done some demos at that point and I, and I had just started doing what I thought was going to be a one-off fill in for a local art center. And, uh, it turned into, you know, a lot more. And then just with the uh, onset of the, the pandemic, you know, uh, I got picked up by another art center in outside of Seattle, uh, Winslow art center. And I do a bunch of teaching for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't plan for that though. I'm ridiculously grateful for that. So I am just kind of looking forward to seeing what happens in, in two years. My plan is just to keep painting and keep doing what I'm doing. And I look forward to seeing what kind of unfolds as I keep moving. The etcher kind of was not something I planned on either. It just showed up. That's cool. Yeah. It's, I, and that's kind of the nature. I think a lot of, of how I've, you know, done things through life, things just present themselves and uh, I get into it, see where it goes. Sometimes it bears fruit and sometimes it doesn't. The painting has definitely been uh, very fruitful and I, I, I love it. I absolutely love it. So, I mean, I, there was a point where I stopped watercolor for a little while. I'd gotten quite into acrylic and was painting bigger canvases and that sort of thing. But then I broke my leg quite badly, dislocated in a fracture while trying to photograph a sunset. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And so I was on my back for a number of months with my leg elevated and my wife actually brought out my watercolors for me while I was laying on the couch Nice. and uh, got back into the watercolors and I was like, oh man, like, I love this. Like, I really do. There's just something about it that, that um, is, I, I can't really describe it. I'm curious, you said you've been doing this for 10 years. Uh, you, we talked before we started recording that your kids are, um, let's say, early 20s. Uh, so this means, you know, they were in and around 10 years old or that when you started this journey. What what advice would you give to somebody, a parent who's who's got kids that age, who's trying to bring in creativity into their life? Was there anything you did differently? I mean, obviously having a supportive, par- supportive partner is helpful. But um, what are your thoughts looking back 10 years ago? about finding the time, finding the space to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, you just kind of, you just kind of do it. <laughs> uh, uh, it's, you know, I, I mean, it's interesting. Like my studio space is, isn't in an area that I can just close the door and shut everybody out. So it's always very visible when, when I'm working. And even when, you know, I wasn't, with a, a studio space, I was painting on the kitchen counter. So, you know, it was, they, they just knew what I was doing because there I was. Um, <laughs> and sometimes it would be, and watercolor is great in, in that regard because, you know, it really requires, you know, 10, 15 minutes of my attention and then I got to leave it alone for a little while. Um, you know, if I'm teaching, then I'll pull a hairdryer out you know, dry a wash and then keep going at it. But, you know, I can just sit down for 10, 15 minutes, lay a wash down and then start dinner or whatever, and then come back to it when it's dry and, and do what I need to do at that point and then do something else. So it does have uh, a, a element of stop start to it. 
So you just, you, yeah, if, if something you want to do and it's something you want to work at, then you need to find a way, right? And I, I think that watercolor works works well for that. I mean, even, you know, oil painting or whatnot would probably work well for that too because I haven't done a little bit of oil, but, you know, you can just kind of step away from it, come back, add more, step away, add more. Um, I don't mean to belittle the process of right. a really talented oil painter, but, you know, that's kind of yeah. my my impression and experience of it. Acrylic, maybe not so much. You just got to quite use that stuff up before it gets all thick and pasty or right. plasticky. And then you got to throw it out and squirt more out of the tubes. But I, I think that's not something we talk about often enough is is fitting the creative path, that journey, that that need, that want into your life, whatever that life is, mm-hmm. can be really hard. Um, you know, whether it's a family whether it's you're working two jobs, whether you don't have all the supplies uh, you can afford, uh, you know, the, the, the life that happens around creatives, um, it can be really tough. And it's, uh, I appreciate you talking about that because I think, especially as parents, uh, you know, in, in many relationships now, there's a kind of, one would hope, a distributed uh work environment <laughs> in helping manage some of that, which maybe makes it yep. easier for some and maybe it's still a problem for others. But I appreciate you speaking to that. I think we need to talk more about, um, you know, the, not the assumption that we've got this perfect studio space and when the door is closed, I create and I can be in there for 15 hours and no one bothers me. That like That's, that's a pipe dream. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. as you say, being able to do it in your kitchen while the kids are running around uh, wondering when their food's going to be ready and the toaster oven's going off and this and that. Um, that's just, that's part of it. That's uh, yeah, it, cool. It absolutely is. I mean, and you can have a space where you can close the door and hypothetically spend 10 hours working away. But, you know, it's, you got to minimize even the distractions when you're on your own too, because it's certainly easy to pull out any of these uh, tools that we have access to these days and while away 90% of that time. Right, and then you have ten percent left to be creative. Yeah, um, that whole uh, doing research on Instagram can chew up thirty right. minutes to forty-five right. minutes. Right, 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 right. Yeah, it's 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 challenge. It's a challenge. So I mean, and often it's it's a lot about just just getting a bit bullheaded about it and just deciding that you know I've got to do this today. I've got to do something. Finding some sort of task or activity that that. You know, if time is an issue, then maybe 10 minutes of gesture drawing or something, right? Mm-hmm. Or often, you know, the way I teach, I talk about ratios, alignments, and direction of line. And maybe, you know, you're just looking at images on your computer or tablet, but you can take a few moments to actually look at some of those shapes and try to figure out what their proportions are. You're you're informing your artistic self and your ability to observe, even without having a pencil or a, a brush in your hand. There's ways around the busyness to still vision towards your artistic goals. Don't tell anyone, but I've done this in family <laughs> situations where I take out my phone and people think you're just checking something, but all I'm doing is like, I wonder how many pictures of buffaloes I have. And I look through my, my photo library on my iPhone and I have a drawing subjects 
album. And I just find a few pictures. It's like, yeah, I gotta draw that. I'm gonna draw that. I'm gonna put it in my drawing subjects photo album just so I can access it later. Uh, I'm doing that all the time. <laughs> Grabbing these photos. Now, how many buffaloes? I think I've got about eight. But these are all photos <laughs> I took. Like, I've got to think about 65,000 photos or something over a few years. Like, it's not all nature, right? But, you know, it's, it's, I can find a lot of my own references. And so I'm just, it's part of thinking, what am I going to draw next? Uh, a buffalo or, a, uh, you know, a, another chickadee or a dog or whatever. But, uh, yeah, it is, you know, as you say, like, it's not always drawing. Sometimes it is, you know, finding the photos or thinking about how you're going to approach it. I, I was, no, I won't go down that route because I can't remember what I was doing. <laughs> I think it was, no, you know what it was? I was looking at a plant and I was thinking, how would I render the sheen on the leaf? And I, I think that once you start creating, whether it's pencil, watercolor, oil, acrylics, you start to look at things differently and we need to leverage the fact that that's what we're doing and embrace the observation. Yep. Because I think that's, I mean, that was the whole point of your first session. So I think as long as we come away with this, the fact that we are changing and we're looking at the world differently, we need to embrace that. Yeah. Now, what is the sheen other than value, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But it's, you know, it's, it's, I started thinking, how would I do that in graphite? I know how I could do that in graphite. How would I do that in watercolor? And hmm, I wonder if I, because I've been using mushroom ink, which is one color. So I've been painting with mushroom ink that I made. And I'm like, how would I do that then? Can I do that with mushroom ink? And of course you can, but it's thinking about how to do that and, and, um, you know, what's a soft edge, what's a hard edge. And how, how you, like it's, it's, it's stuff that you can do when you do it, but you're thinking about it, right? Mushroom ink. <laughs> so, I in Canada we have ink caps, um, shaggy oh, okay. ink caps, and so what oh, I did, yeah, 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 is I harvest them as they start to deliquesce, draw, start dropping the ink, and I put them into a margarine container in my fridge for four days, and then I mashed them through a tea diffuser, and then I boiled them for a little bit. The last batch I did, I boiled it just to bring down the water content a bit, and then I add twenty percent vodka, and I make ink. And now I have mushroom ink. Okay. And I, right. I paint it on, and it's like watercolor. So I have it in a palette. It dries, and so you can reactivate it with water. And I did a bunch of um, original mushrooms on watercolor, and it's just so much fun to work with. And it smells like the woods. It smells like the woods. It smells like the woods. It seems like some sort of artisanal product that uh, Gwyneth would chill on goop. <laughs> well, I, I called my 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 uh, this first series mushroom recursion because I'm drawing them with themselves. So I thought uh, I had to call it mushroom right. recursion. Right, right, right. But the uh, microdose series. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate my work and then lick the paper. No, no. Don't <laughs> Lisa, drink the water. <laughs> so um, I wanted to ask you as well. I assume by your nails that you're still playing guitar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, it, not not as I, I, I got right back into it again um, and during the pandemic, but yeah, I haven't been playing too much lately. But it's one of those things where, you know, once you start playing, uh, you kind of need to keep them because they become an integral part of of how you play that mm -hmm. if all of a sudden they're gone i decide that's the day i'm going to pick it up again mm -hmm. and then i don't have those mm -hmm. i can't really do it so right i just kind of keep them and they're they're handy for other things too opening up things boxes 
Right. Um, they're very versatile. <laughs> Back scratcher. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I saw when I saw your nails, it, I immediately thought a friend of mine teaches music. Uh, he went to McGill, and um, and now he teaches music in a high school, and he always had those kind of guitar hands. And when I saw your hands, it's like, oh, I, I can hear the music. Like, I, I mean, he used to play all the time. You know, he was into Rush and stuff when we were in high school and uh, eventually went into, um, he could just play wonderful stuff on the guitar. So when I saw your hands, it brought back memories of high school. So, uh, yeah. It's cool, it's cool yeah. that you're still playing. I think that's wonderful. I wanted to ask you, before we get into where people can find you online, I always ask my guest for homework, something that mm-hmm. the listener can think, okay, Ian's been great. I love everything he says. Uh, <laughs> can I do something to further things along? So what would you suggest as a matter of homework for the listener? So uh, one thing that I like to, you know, anything that I'm going to suggest is something that I've done and have found merit in doing. Uh, and, you know, since a lot of, of what I do is birds, what I'm going to suggest is bird related. But, um, you know, I would suggest choosing something that's you know local to wherever it is that you're you know listening from i mean if it's in north america chickadees tend to be uh fairly common all over the place um and it's a really nice simple shape as far as a bird goes but i would recommend drawing not one or ten but really a number of them you know 30, 40, 50, really, whatever. And as you do that, you really start to get a strong sense of the shapes and the proportions of one specific species, of whatever it is that you choose. And then when you find yourself moving to a different one, say, for example, a goldfinch, right? it becomes a lot easier to recognize and observe the differences in the shapes, you know, the longer, more elongated body in a goldfinch compared to a chickadee, Uh, the proportion of the size of the head to the body on a goldfinch compared to a chickadee, right? And so doing that repeatedly is is a really good way to, I would say, establish a baseline, a template, if you will, um, that you can then work from when you look and at, at when you look at and observe other birds. Um, so I think that's a really a really good homework assignment. You know, focus on on one thing for, and, and that idea has come up a number of times in this in this conversation too. Even with the paper, right? Just like mm-hmm. sticking with one type of paper for a while, just getting some form of consistency um in in what you do so that you can kind of be a little bit freer going forward and then even with the bird thing uh i've actually in doing that it's made it a lot easier for me to identify birds when i'm out with binoculars or my camera because i'm more tuned into the shapes because i do have now i guess a bit of a repertoire of of some of the proportions and shapes of these birds from having seen them and drawn them and painted them it just seems to get a little bit stronger all the time. So, yeah, I think uh, that, that that's a brilliant exercise. I don't know why I didn't think about that earlier, but I think that's that's a great idea because I think you know the the, the challenge we have in building something that we haven't grown up with is that um, we don't have that inventory of creative shapes 
that we would gain from that kind of exercise. And so we talked, I think, before recording, but you know, this idea that you have, you know, you lean on those things that you know. And if you haven't drawn, if if you're doing your first chickadee and all you've drawn is landscapes or human figures, then you may find it more challenging. But as soon as you start drawing circles and attaching triangles to them Mm -hmm. and then balancing the larger kind of oblong circle below the small circle, uh, then you can differentiate between a robin and a cardinal and a chickadee and a great blue heron. And so I think that's a fantastic exercise. Yeah. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) I really... I agree. I agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) And I agree with you. Uh, Yeah, I think that's great. I think for people who are finding this challenging, it's so funny. I've seen like TikTok videos where it's like, how do you draw a chickadee? Well, here's my example. But how do you draw a chickadee? You do one circle and another circle, and then you finish the chickadee. it's, It's not that simple, right? But it is a matter of breaking it down into a structure. And then because they're all birds... They are all related, you know. The beak changes, and the head changes. The eye, roughly in the same position, but that may change a little bit as well. And uh, but it's it's all basic shapes. And so I think that goes to your to the first session you did where you were drawing the chickadee and people understanding how you lay it out. That can apply that mm-hmm. to any bird. But I think there is like chickadees are just wonderful. I think I've drawn probably twenty myself, and I will not stop drawing chickadees because they're just. They're so they're so damn cute. And they're charming, and you know they're they're in mixed flocks. They're they sometimes they're like the alpha, considering how small and cute they are. They're they seem to be the ones that the other birds kind of uh, kind of go to. It's like because they're they're the noisy ones. Right. They, they tend to keep an eye out and look for predators and whatnot. And I'll just watch my house finches and goldfinches just sit there and stuff their face at the feeder. <laughs> Right. When when the chickadees around, right? It's like yeah, we don't have to. We don't have to look for anything. We're just gonna let this guy do all the work, and when he starts making a bunch of noise, then we're gonna stop eating and go hide in the bushes. Yeah. You know. Well, we have a we have a, a small two acre lot, and at the back in the woods, my wife, wife kind of cleared away an area, and she calls it Chickadee Hollow because uh, in there I've got some stumps that you can sit on, and if you throw bird food down, the chickadees will come down and land on your head and on your legs and uh, enjoy their wonderful food so yeah love chickadees yeah they're, they're yeah. awesome yeah so that that's great i think that's fantastic homework uh so the last little bit is uh where can people find you online ian so yeah i think that the best place to find me uh is on instagram that is where i am the most active um i could say uh i have a facebook page for my art as well but really anything mm-hmm. that gets populated on there is just a byproduct of posting to Instagram. Right. Um, and then I do have a website as well, but uh, it's um, it's ill-maintained, admittedly. And you have so. some stuff up on YouTube as well. Uh, so that's... Oh, yeah. I guess I, I do have... I haven't put anything up there in a while, but uh, there are there are a few, a few videos up there. I think there might be a link to it um, in the links in my bio on Instagram. That's wonderful. So I think that's, I mean, this has been incredible. I feel enthusiastic about doing more watercolor and finishing your course and maybe considering the next one, the more advanced or whatever it is um, that's coming up after that. And uh, I encourage the listener, if you want to take this on, do it. It's not an expensive course. Um, If you want to try watercolor and you like birds, this is the best course for that. 
So I recommend <laughs> and it would be easy because it's not this um so when this episode comes out it'll be the upcoming weekend. You would have opportunity between now and, and course number two to consume course number one and understand what's to do with drawing. It wasn't a, lot, a whole lot of homework with that. And then uh then join us for for course number two because I'll be there for each of these as well. I think that's been incredible and Ian, I thank you so much for opening up and, and talking about what you've done and how you've done it and, and you know being self-taught along the way, I think it's incredible for people to hear and uh, you know everything that that you've learned and, and obviously there's a huge amount of knowledge in working with watercolor and paint and paper and this has just been uh, fantastic and I appreciate your time. I know I'm pushing it into the dinner hour for you and I do appreciate you staying online and and talking through this and uh, sharing all your knowledge. It's been, it's been incredible. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, I mean, Mike, absolutely my pleasure. Uh, this was a lot of fun. I really appreciate the, the thoughtful questions that you've had about this stuff. And I mean, if, if it's been of help to anybody, um, then I, I think that's awesome. Cool. So, so I think if you, if you felt inspired by this, uh, feel free to tag myself or Ian in uh, some of your work. If you're doing it on Instagram or elsewhere, uh, so we can see it, and uh, this would be uh, this would be cool, especially if you're going to be in the course. Uh, you know, you could tag Ian and tag uh, Etcher as well, and uh, that way everyone sees it. But um, yeah, this has been fun. Thanks so much, Ian. Absolute pleasure. Okay, I'll see you online. <laughs> yeah, you know it. <laughs> okay. Talk to you later. Okay, take care, Mike. Okay, bye. Show notes, including links to everything Ian and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm/sixty-seven. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, share, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This will help surface the podcast for others to enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Be kind to yourself and each other, and keep drawing. Theme music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod.